finishing off your dessert, just a few housekeeping matters before we invite our speakers back to the podium. We want to acknowledge Shaw Spotlight, the Lethbridge Herald, CKXU Radio and other media for covering Cycler events. Our thanks go to Great Plate Catering for preparing lunch and to the University of Lethbridge for its support in a number of ways. We are always looking to expand our membership. It only costs $25 for the whole year. Annelise Van Oors would be happy to sell you a membership if you're interested. Our session next week deals with hurricane devastation in Dominica. And our speakers are from that beautiful Caribbean island. Upcoming sessions of SAGPA are listed on the website, which is www.sagpa.ca. And you can also listen to recordings of past sessions on the website. We now come to our question and answer session. Please use the microphone on my left. State your name. Keep your question or comment short. And no questions or comments from the floor, please. So let me invite our speakers back up to the podium. Okay, so do we have any sound on this microphone? We do not. Do we have sound on this microphone? Yes, thank you. Okay, go ahead, uh, questioner. Sorry, I have sound here. My name is Henning Mundell, and I know this topic is close to your hearts and close to your uh, passions and uh, your lived history, your personal ones. My question is, do you have a way that you see now living in Canada for many years, that you can be somehow actively involved in uh, furthering peace over there, other than talking to groups like us here, but to actually be involved with groups in, in that area? It's to both of you, if possible. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. Yeah, we are involved with groups. Um, I'm part of a group that uh, is active in uh, Calgary. It's called Justice for Palestinians. We try to organize events, invite speakers, and uh, uh, and so forth. Um, I, th I think it's important to remember that uh, you cannot just talk peace. Talking peace will not achieve peace. You have to have peace based on a solid foundation of justice. So you've got to address the fundamental injustice that was done. Otherwise, the problem will linger for, for forever. Thank you. Uh, just to quickly add, um, um, as an academic, I do view my work itself as, as part of my activities. So the, the research that I produce, the articles that I write, uh, the talks, 
uh, and also, I mean, the mode of action that is available to us as Canadian, which is writing to your uh, representatives at the federal level and telling them uh, how you feel about certain issues. Uh, when they do something well, congratulate them, and when they do something bad, tell them that it is something bad. Uh, um, so that would be my form of action, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Uh, my name is Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for driving down from Calgary to give a, a very good overview of the situation. Um, my question is relates to uh, the abused often becomes the abuser, meaning that the Jews in Europe especially were abused and haunted and for many, many years, and now they have their power to do the same thing to, to make sure that they're not being abused again. Can you comment on that uh, situation? Uh, Sorry, I don't hear you. <laughs> oh, maybe did you want to get closer to the microphone? The microphone is in front of you. No, because he has a hearing uh, problem, hearing the questions. Ah, well, okay, okay, the okay. question was that the Jews in Europe had been persecuted for many, many years. And do you think they're getting it back now on the Palestinians and they're being the oppressors now because they were being oppressed before? Meaning that so, it, it's acting out of fear. Yes, yes. So, so this is not a dynamic that is unique to this situation. Uh, scholars of violence uh, have talked about this dynamic in other uh, areas. Um, in, in Rwanda, for instance, um, um, one of the famous uh, scholars um, uh, in that area, one of the title of his books is uh, when, when Victims Turn Into Killers or, or something along those lines. Uh, so it is a dynamic that we've seen in other areas uh, where basically violence begets violence is another way to look at it. Um, and um, it, it, it does take a serious effort to try to undo the cycle. Because um, the problem when, when you take it off or, or, take it, or, or commit violence that was committed against you against someone else is you're in a way continuing that kind of form of violence and then you're just now contributing to that a, a kind of a cycle that will come back at you at some point. Uh, so, so that's a, which is a stark warning that we need to take into account, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just add one thing about this. Uh, <clears throat> the only bright point I see on the scene today is the dedication of many Jewish activists, both in Canada and the US. In Canada, uh, independent Jewish voices collaborates with Palestinians, and in the US, Jewish Voice for Peace, and they are both very active. And I think this is where, the, where our efforts should go. It's not a Jewish problem, it's not a religious problem, it's an old colonization problem. The religion is just a cover. It's just like the Crusades. The Crusades were supposed to be a religious uh, movement, but actually it was just a colonial movement. The, one of the acts of the Crusaders were to sack Con Constantinople, which was a, a Christian city. So uh, the, uh, 
I think that's, that is a really encouraging point. Okay, thank Jewish you. Jewish people are very active today. Thank you. Next question, please, or comment. I'm sorry, what? Next question oh. or comment, please okay. state your okay. name. Okay, Darlene, Darlene McLean. I lived in Israel in 1977 and 1978. I have lots of questions, but I'll just give you three really short ones. Um, what do you think about the extreme lack of balanced coverage of realities on the ground there? And uh, what is your opinion about the lack of presence of UN oversight? And can you tell these people about what the Canadian tax dollars did to create the Canada Peace Park in Israel? I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but if you wouldn't mind telling people what their tax dollars did, thank you. So that was more than one question. Would you like to... You only need to answer one of those questions before well, we move okay. on. The, you know the Canadian park, the trees? Oh, Canada Park? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Canada Park, <laughs> within, I think, about a week after the war in 67, Israel occupied part of what was the West Bank then and demolished uh, three Palestinian villages and got uh, money raised in Canada to establish Canada Park there. And... Uh, for people who want to read more about it, there's a good website. It's called Canada Talks Israel Palestine, and he's got an, an article there on on Canada Park. But basically, uh, Canada Park was the, established on the ruins of three Palestinian villages, and the uh, forests were seeded there to cover the ruins of the Palestinian villages. And, and just very quickly on the question of the media, it is, it is certainly not a neutral uh, account or objective account. For a long time, we used to always say that uh, the, the discourse and the media coverage uh, by Israelis in Israel was way better than the coverage of, of North American media about the issue. Um, uh, Israelis might come and tell, you, tell me, I don't want you to exist, but at least that acknowledges my existence. Uh, um, uh, here, you, you still have to sometimes convince people that there is such a thing as a Palestinian. So, uh, but that shows you the larger geostrategic picture as well and where Canada and the U.S. stand. It's not a secret. So. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Hi, um, my name's Tony Parchet, and thank you for the uh, restrained passion of your presentation, which was you know, actually very moving. Um, my, oh, maybe I'll, I'll lift it up. Is that better? Um, my question is this. Where do you see, at this point, momentum for peace coming from, given two things? Uh, within the area, the Israeli government seems to be focused on expanding settlements, taking more, establishing facts on the ground, really, by taking ever more Palestinian land uh, for Jewish settlers. Yet, on, externally, the Arab world seems to have kind of lost interest in the whole issue. They've become more focused on the civil war between Sunni and, and Shia, and uh, Israel has essentially formed an alliance with Saudi Arabia and the United States against Iran, and uh, the whole Palestinian question has you know, been sidelined as far as I can see. So where, do you see any way that this you know, logjam could be broken? Thank you. 
so uh, the, the, as I mentioned in my presentation, I think the logjam can only be broken by people on the streets. I've, I've lost hope for, I, I, I'm not a type that has lost hope in political institutions per se. I believe in political institutions in Canada and that they can work even when they don't work, that we can push them towards working. Uh, uh, but, but I don't believe that, I think, I think in, in that region they, they've, they, they, they've reached their limit and, and, and they're not listening to, to people on the, on the ground anymore. Uh, the, but, but by the way, the, the, uh, I completely agree with your assessment of where the Arab world is right now on that question, but it's nothing new. Um, the PLO was formed in the 60s precisely for the Arab nations to go, it's off of our hands now. Uh, uh, but prior, to, but prior to the official formation of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Arab states took on that struggle in a way as their own. Uh, and by the 60s, they were already saying, this is a lost cause, we don't want it anymore. This is just causing us more trouble than, than, than is worth it for us as dictatorial leaders in our countries. Um, and, and they redirected their energies, not necessarily, by the way, towards the Sunni-Shiite struggle, but towards basically maintaining those authoritarian regimes as authoritarian regimes. That's where their energy goes and still goes today. Yeah. Thank you. Next question, please. My name is Lauren, and um, I was wondering for either of you, if you'd give me um, a bit of your take on Palestinian leadership, um, particularly uh, on the, the suggestion that's been made sometimes that for the PLO or for Hamas, um, the conflict provides an ongoing job for leadership at the top, and that sometimes has been suggested that you know it's doing well for them, it gives them a perpetual job, and that some of them may not have an interest in really bringing peace, they might like to prolong the conflict. So just your take on, on how well PLO and Hamas leadership has served Palestinian people or if they're just prolonging things sometimes. Thank you. Do you want to take that one too? Okay. Uh, so uh, um, the, it, it, it's a very complex question. So uh, certainly the corruption of the PLO leadership, particularly uh, in Fatah, uh, was so widespread um, that they lost the, their connection with the Palestinian uh, uh, on the ground pretty much immediately after Oslo. It didn't take very long. It was almost immediate that that connection was severed and that you saw you know, Arafat flying in helicopters all of a sudden and buying Mansons and, and, and doing certain things with the money that was coming in from the international community that were not beneficial for the everyday Palestinians. That was certainly there. And that was, in fact, the driving force behind the popularity of Hamas. Um, disagreeable as they are in their politics, as far as I'm concerned, um, you have to admit that they were less corrupt in their initial formation. Uh, uh, they would take money from the international community, they would spend it on, on orphanages and, and, and poor people that need education and healthcare and that sort of thing. That, that swelled up their ranks. A lot of people voted for them not because of their ideological uh, agreements, but precisely because on the question of corruption, they thought they were better than Fatah. Um, um, eventually, they proved themselves to be similar, although you could still argue that they are probably still less corrupt than the, 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 the government in, in, in the West Bank. Uh, uh, but they have now their, you know, you put them in power, of course, they're going to go down the, the, the path of corruption. So, so there are lots of problems within the Palestinian leadership. Uh, uh, the, the, the grassroots uh, uh, Palestinian activists um, certainly view the PA as basically an illegitimate uh, uh, governing uh, structure. Um, but I will say this, on the municipal level, there is some degree of satisfaction with the municipal governance. Uh, uh, but the municipal governance level is different than the level of the PA, um, which is not dissimilar to a lot of other places, by the way. Uh, most of you might be more happy with your municipal government than you are with your provincial or federal. Okay, so, yeah. good, yeah. thank you. Let's move on. Mary Shillington, um, 
in, in many ways, what's happened to uh, the Palestinians is no different than what happened to the indigenous people here in Canada. Um, I'm involved in the United Church, and I'm wondering if you, either of you, have heard about the ecumenical group that goes into Palestine uh, and helps uh, uh, Palestinians cross the borders and through some of the issues, uh, uh, dealing with some of the issues with the Israeli Israelis. Uh, we looked at becoming one of those two of those witnesses, and uh, it didn't, ha didn't happen for us because of our own personal circumstances. But uh, we've had reports of that, how good it, that is, has been helpful. And so I'm wondering if either of you two know about that and if you can comment on that. Thank you. Do you want to speak to that one? So the religious groups? Yes, the witnesses that go. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, it's funny you should mention it because on October 31st, uh, I'm invited to a, a potluck lunch with the Mennonite uh, witness program. And uh, they came and spoke in Calgary at Project Plowshares, and that's how I got to know them. So I, I think uh, the importance of these, the witness programs, there's a few churches involved in that, is very important because it, it's an, an eye on the window of the world as to what is going on within the uh, occupied territories. Uh, and, but my talk is centered more about, the, uh, about Israel itself rather than the occupation. And uh, I think it's clear that the solution that's emerging now is between the Jordan River and the sea, there is one country only. And, and that is, you call it Palestine, call it Israel, with about 50-50% divided. So I think this, the way forward is for the Israeli government to say, listen, all people are equal, and we grant equal rights to everybody. Forget the Jewish state, forget the Muslim state, the Arab state, whatever. People come first. That, that would be my answer. Okay, thank you. Next question or comment, please. My name is Andrew Blair. I'd like to ask what is perhaps a little bit of a personal question, so I'm a bit hesitant about asking it, but to what extent do either of you censor yourselves for fear of being inaccurately accused of anti-Semitism? No, no, I don't. Uh, I've never been, uh, I'd like to think I've never been racist, bigot, or anything like that. I treat e people equally on, uh, but given that, I mean, you have to be careful what you say. And it's easy to fall into many traps. So uh, I don't have any fear uh, myself. It's, it's a very good question. Um, uh, personally, I also don't censor myself. At least I don't think I do. But the problem is, of course, sometimes you censor yourself without knowing that you're censoring yourself. That is a thing that does happen. Um, um, uh, I obviously I am aware of the uh, uh, of that dynamic. Uh, I'm aware of all sorts of uh, professors that um, won't bring in a speaker that they want to bring in because of fear of backlash and accusations uh, uh, such as this. Um, uh, I don't think it should stop us. I think we should look at it as a chance to improve ourselves 
and how we talk about the issue and how we talk about anything, really. Nobody's perfect in how they speak about any given political issue. Uh, so I look at it as uh, um, a chance to, you know, should I reformulate how I said this and still get at the same meaning and it would be a better, uh, make me a better person for it? I think that's a healthy question to ask ourselves. So I, I approach it in that manner as opposed to letting the, the, the potential of being misheard or misinterpreted uh, uh, censor me. So, Thank you. Yeah. Just Next. Can, can I add something? Yes, go ahead. I think there is an important point here, like Mark was saying, is that it's important to really listen to the other side. And uh, in that sense, like I try to listen to uh, people who disagree with me and rather than censor myself and try to understand where they're coming from. And I think that's a positive thing. Thank you. Douglas Mitchell. Um, I had the fortune or misfortune of serving as a junior officer in the British forces. In, uh, I was actually based in Amman in Jordan, but I was in Jerusalem the day that the, the Irgun blew up the, or Haganah was, blew up the King David Hotel. And one of the things that, and that stuck in my mind, and I always, for three months I was there, I carried a loaded Smith & Wesson revolver all the time. That was mandatory, we had no option. And so I, this always sticks in my memory about the, the uh, Jewish people uh, and the Israeli state always had great ability to uh, do things under the guise of uh, bettering or, or, or pushing forward the establishment of the British of the uh, Jewish Israeli state, state of Israel. And I really do think that the, um, we have to look back at history all the time, and somebody mentioned that before, that history tells a lot, and history must be remembered when we're trying to find a solution. And I always thought that the, the Jewish people, and particularly the fanatical Zionists, were expert terrorists and were the best terrorists in the world. We've seen many other terrorist groups since. And there's still that memory in my mind of that time. And I wonder what influenced the, the fact that Israel, of course, the Jews have always struggled. They were a diaspora, but now they're concentrated in, in Israel. But I, I, I just wonder what there's something in their psyche which doesn't exist with the Palestinians, I don't think, to nearly the same extent, that that has influenced the outcome of this uh, dispute. Okay, thank you. Do you want to comment on that memory which the questioner has uh, just <laughs> recounted? I'd like to say something about the geopolitical aspect, but actually Fouad has, was telling me in the car about that ex exact incident. So. Well, I, I was talking to, I forget this gentleman's name was sitting next to him. I talked about the King David Hotel, and that was blown up by the Zionists in, uh, I think, 47 or, uh, and 46, late of 46. And I, I used to spend, uh, Summers in some summers in Jerusalem where my aunt lived, and I remember the maid taking me to walk from 
where they, we lived in the new uh, in the new city of Jerusalem to the old city, and you pass by the King David Hotel, and I have a distinct memory to this day. It was amazing. You could see like a tin can that had been opened, and you could see inside the rooms. And I have this memory of it to today. Just a, a, a couple of a quick points. The, 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 the hardcore fanatics that form those terrorist groups, uh, their backbone actually comes from a, uh, uh, the Polish Jewish community that trained in Poland um, a, 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 in the art of non-state group violence. Um, and, and they uh, came actually through a very complicated route through Iran, in fact, uh, all through the Middle East uh, to, 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 the man, to the British Mandate of Palestine, where they carried out those, those training, th that training. Um, uh, in addition, I would like to point out as well that there is a vast difference between what the British officers on the ground thought, what they saw, what they knew was the case, versus British policy uh, that was developed in England. Uh, British policy wanted the State of Israel to be created, they thought it was a strategic asset to them. They armed both sides, but they armed the Israeli sides better. Uh, and they trained them better. And, um, and they made sure that they won uh, um, uh, when they left. Um, so I understand that, because you're not the first uh, uh, British officer that I've talked to uh, um, um, who was on the ground there. And I understand there is a big difference between what, and as there always is, between what soldiers think and what the higher-ups think. Uh, but the higher-ups, we're, we're all behind that. Okay, thank you. Uh, one question, please. Yes, the, uh, the UN. Uh, you know, in Cyprus, you see so many UN personnel on the ground controlling a lot of the back and forth. And what's blocking more UN um, activities in Israel? And uh, do you think that's a good or bad thing? Thank you. It's, it, it's a bad thing, and it's the U.S. <laughs> it's a very short answer to that one. Uh, the U.S. Uh, um, has, it, it, there has never been a neutral side in this. It's not Trump is not coming in and changing their position. He's just uh, uh, unveiling the curtain on what has been happening for, for many, many years. Uh, the U.S. Is, is on the side of Israel. Uh, um, you know, it's funny how you always hear about them as the neutral, uh, uh, whatever they call themselves, uh, the, uh, the neutral... Um, Honest broker, that's the one. They, yeah, they always tell them this honest broker, and then when it comes to election time, they're all fighting who's more pro-Israel than the, than the next person is. And there's no irony in that whatsoever. Like, no, that's who you are. You know, let's just call the spade a spade. Uh, they are very much on the side of Israel for mostly strategic and economic reasons. They are the ones that stop a lot of the UN Security Council resolutions. You can just look at their veto history for that. Uh, and they continue to do that. They continue to withdraw their money. And then there's a larger picture now with the U.S. and the U.N. that also uh, is, is an ongoing dynamic, uh, as we all know. So, yeah, it, it would be helpful if the U.N. was an actual player in this, though. Yeah. I'm not sure what you said in your last sentence, but what you said earlier brings me on to a question that I have. Now, Donald Trump has said that brokering the... Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, problem is going to be the deal of the century. Okay? Yeah. Now, he's already got Kim Jong-un not on board, but at least talking. Uh, yesterday, when the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, uh, said that she was stepping down, 
she said Gerard Kushner is the person that advises her, that advises the president on the Middle East situation. The president keeps saying that Gerard Kushner is his point man on the Israeli-Palestinian situation. So what do you feel about that? Not much. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, Jared Kushner is, is, the, is, the, is the guy now. He does everything. His portfolio is bigger than any portfolio anyone's ever seen, and he has the least experience that anyone's ever seen. So, um, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a joke that I think eventually will come and, and bite them in the you-know-what. Um, uh, but but uh, to me, when, whenever you talk about someone like Jared Kushner who has no actual knowledge of the region, no, uh, no, no training whatsoever in diplomatic circles, uh, not, not a, the slightest understanding of how any of, uh, of those processes of negotiations that are highly complex work, um, uh, you have to go to just his, his background, which is purely economic and self-interested. Um, so the deal of the century is basically, as far as I can see it, um, the Jared Kushner, MBS, uh, the Saudi prince, um, uh, and Netanyahu uh, um, uh, drawing up the region in a way that allows them to grab all the power and counter the Iranian uh, uh, influence in the region. Um, uh, basically, the Palestinians can go to hell. Uh, uh, they'll get what we tell them they can get. Is, is basically the deal of the century that the Palestinians are supposed to accept with open arms, uh, which obviously will all backfire because nobody on the ground will ever accept any of these terms. Uh, no Palestinian on the ground is going to willingly uh, uh, secede uh, uh, all of their rights and, and dignity and freedom and liberation and, and all of those struggles that they've done throughout all those years uh, because Jared Kushner said so. Okay, well that's a yeah. clear answer, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Now we have one more questioner there. If, I hope he's not going to get us if to I'm allowed, our just time. A quick so make it a quick question, please, It'll be very and, quick. and a quick answer. Uh, could you comment on the situation in Gaza, which is basically a prison camp? Uh, do you see any light in the end of the tunnel, so to speak, in that region? Okay. Situation in Gaza, prison camp. You can take it, but but uh, um, it's it is one of the most horrific situations I think in the world today. I think um, it has to come to an end at one point. How and and in what way? I have no idea. But when it does end, um, people in history in the future will look back on this moment and and say rightfully shame on every single person that was alive at that moment that they would silently let the situation carry out the way it has been carried out for at least uh, 12 or so years now, or 10 years, uh, um, and, and it will continue on. It, it, is, it is, to me, uh, unbelievable how people are, are, are getting up in the day every morning and, and carrying on there. Um, and and the, the entire world is, is complicit. Um, obviously, the Israelis, the Egyptians, and the Americans are, are, are playing the biggest part there, uh, uh, but, but there's, there, there is, enough blame to go around for everyone on this one. Well, on Gaza, there's only one way that describes Gaza, one word. It's a concentration camp. Okay, well, that really brings us to the end of our uh, session. We have one questioner who's on the board of SAGPA that wants to go over time too. 
Are you willing to take another question? Thank you. Go ahead, questioner. I'll be very brief, Larry Elford. It's obvious to uh, myself that the U.S. and Canada and other nations are very supportive of Israel through bad behavior and through good. What I don't understand is why. Why are we willfully blind? Why is the world turning a blind eye to atrocities? Why? What is it that Israel has that demands such loyalty and allow to do that? That's a very philosophical question. It's, the, 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 it's, it's, it's a very complicated uh, um, answer. I would, I would say, it's the, the, to me, states don't behave. Uh, uh, their, their base of behavior is, is strategic interests. Uh, clearly, the, the, the West believes that their strategic interests in, in their region, uh, in that region, uh, lies with a strong Israeli state that supports all of their projects whether it's securing trade routes, securing access to resources, well, those are the two big ones, really. <laughs> uh, but also, in a sense, financial markets and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, but the big ones are trade routes and, and, and have always been, and resources in that region. And that's the main interest of those Western states in that region. Uh, and they've always felt that Israel was a very strong tool in the box for them uh, um, to achieve those strategic goals. Um, there are other things that go as window dressing, but I would call them window dressing. Which basically, yes, go ahead. Well, actually, if we go back to Harper, Harper said it all. Israel is like us. And there's some truth in that. Israel is a colonial settler country, just like we are. It is constructed on the ruins of, an, of other uh, people. And I think that may be part of it. Like, uh, Canadians probably feel closer to Israel than to the rebel Palestinians. Uh, I think that might be part of it. <clears throat> okay, well that brings us to the conclusion of the second, uh, this session. And frankly, I don't see much difference between the conclusion here and the conclusion back in May by the Jewish-Israeli group that felt that new leaders would have to emerge on the Palestinian and the Israeli sides for there to be a possible settlement. And that may well be the case, although don't disregard what Donald Trump's deal making might provide. So please thank us, thank our uh, speakers. <laughs>